Hi, and welcome to our show, Forever Paranormal, with your host, Dr. Bill and Ed, where we will discuss such things as cryptids, UFOs, hauntings, angels, unsolved mysteries, government conspiracies and cover-ups, witchcraft, the metaphysical, and more, as well as stories sent in by you, our listeners. If we can connect a paranormal element to it, we'll talk about it. And you may be surprised by what all is connected to the paranormal. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and share the show, since it would not be possible without you, our listeners. And as a public service, we would like to let everyone know that you are truly never alone, even if you think you are. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. Just reach out. Hi folks, welcome to this week's episode where we are going to provide some updates on our previous episode number 19 about cursed and haunted objects and actually talk about a few more of them. Hi Deb, what's happening this week? Hi, not much, how are you? I'm okay, I'm okay, but there's been a small setback in the habituation experiment. Uh oh. It happens that it appears that the gray squirrels have now developed a taste for raw hot dogs. I mean, it looked like a bushy-tailed buffet one morning after weeks of them not touching them and only the crows and ravens eating them. I guess it's back to the dog treats, but I did try some hot dogs with some Texas peat on them this morning. We'll see how that works. Did you maybe get some bad information on squirrels not eating meat? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Our our lovely daughter-in-law corrected me last <laughs> weekend about it, you know, that... I thought squirrels didn't eat meat at all, but it appears that they can develop a taste for it. So I learned lesson number 4,000,029 this week. <laughs> that back when we discussed the Dybbuk box in episode 19, I commented that I was not aware of a rite of exorcism where you could trap demons into an inanimate object. This comment is from my teachings on Jewish and Christian aspects of the Bible and beliefs. But let me be the first one to tell you, I have learned that this does not hold true to all other religions. One of our faithful listeners sent us the following. I listened to your new episode and thought I would share this. In the Vajedion Buddhist tradition, there are well-known stories of masters who trap demons and objects other than mirrors or milong, which is the Buddhist ritual item equivalent. Padmasumba and Drupka Kunli being two of them, demons have been trapped in a thread cross, rocks, ritual triangles, dog skulls, etc. Drukpa Kunli famously subdued a demoness called Laura Duham, who resided on a high pass and terrorized the locals. This occurred in Dokula, Bhutan. He trapped a demoness in a rock in a Panaka Valley. He then built a chorten, which is a stupa, around it. Before killing the demoness, he made a demoness pledge service to the Buddha and become a Dharma protector. She is now the local deity called Chokyam, who is the guardian deity of Chaim Lakang. The stupa became a sacred site, and later a temple was built on this site. The temple is well known and visited by many people for this day. Well, I want to thank you for sending us this information, and it was fascinatingly cool. I know I butchered some of the names a bit, but I did do some research on this and discovered a Pachmahumva. <laughs> Pashmashumba that converted Tibet 
to Buddhism. I'm sorry I laughed at your tongue-twisted pronunciation, but I don't think I'd have done any better. (laughs) Well, let's hear you say it. Padmasumba. Okay, good enough. (laughs) Thank you very much. In that same episode, we also spoke about Annabelle. When you asked me, Deb, what was special about the case, I said it could be locked, but I have since looked deeper into what makes this case so special. Okay. I've since learned that the stain used on the wood was mixed with holy water before it was applied. There are hand-carved inscriptions in the wood on the inside of both the Lord's Prayer and St. Michael's Prayer. St. Michael's Prayer is the one that is used a lot in exorcisms. One would think that would keep the Christian type of demons at bay. But now it appears they have made a special traveling case for Annabelle where she can be displayed at public events since they can't open a museum due to zoning stuff in the town. But rest assured, her handler only touches her while wearing gloves that have crosses on them as well as saint medals made into the fingertips. What do those things do? I guess they keep the demons at bay. That, that, you know. how, how? Do you know? Yeah, I do know. And it's all about the power of God and the belief of the, of the, of the saints and the belief in good over evil. That's how it's done. Oh, okay. And that keeps any kind of connection between his body and the possessed doll away. It's a separation. Kind of like using an oven mitt when you take a pizza out of the oven. I see. Okay, so let's jump in on some new ones here. Let's start with one that I found kind of interesting, and it's called The Screaming Skull of Burton Agnes Hall. Burtonus Agnes Hall is an Elizabeth Manor house in the village of Burton Agnes, England. The Burton Agnes Hall is home to a ghost and a paranormal object known as the Screaming Skull. The ghost of Catherine Ann Griffith, who died at Burton Agnes Hall in 1620, is reputed to have haunted the Queen's state bedroom. Ann Griffith was the youngest of the three sisters whose portraits hang in the inner hall, daughters of Sir Henry Griffin, who built the hall. The story is that Anne had watched the building of the new house and could talk and think of nothing else. It was to be the most beautiful house ever built. When it was almost finished, Anne went out one afternoon to visit St. Quentin's at Hampton, about a mile away. But near St. John's Well, she was attacked and robbed by ruffians. She was brought home to Burton Agnes Hall so badly hurt that she died a few days afterwards. Sometimes delirious, sometimes sensible, she told her sisters that she would never rest unless part of her could remain in our beautiful home as long as it shall last. She made them promise that when she was dead, her head should be severed and preserved in the hall foyer, and to pacify her, the sisters agree. However, when Anne died, she was buried in the churchyard. Why would a young girl want her head severed and kept in the main foyer of the house? Any ideas? So all could see. Okay, that's just morbid. Okay, anyhow. Mm -hmm. After that, 
Her ghost walked and scared the life out of everybody. Remembering Anne's dying words, the sisters took counsel with the vicar and eventually agreed, agreed that the grave should be opened and the skull was brought into the house and as so long as it was undisturbed, the hall was peaceful and untroubled. Many attempts had been made to get rid of it. Once it was thrown away, another time it was buried in the garden. But always the ghost walked with tremendous noise and upheaval. The skull is still in a house somewhere, built into one of the old walls. Probably in the great hall, but nobody knows for sure just where it is now. But we can watch over, but she can watch over her beautiful house. I read that she sometimes appears on the anniversary of her death. Yeah, she does. And she's still a ghost in the house, but there's just not a screaming ghost all the time. I guess that's changed. You know, apparently there are a lot of screaming skull stories in England. The legends have been passed down for generations. I have not run across any proof of origin, but there is a belief that they are derived from Celtic myth, or mythology, excuse me. Others just believe it's a simple, silly superstition. What do you think? Well, I think the Celts had a lot of different beliefs and paganism and so on and so forth. Uh, Stonehenge, everything else. And there are still Celtic practices that are done today. I happen to use a few of them. So that might be where it actually comes from. There are questions about that because it's only in certain areas of England if it were, and they're saying in these uh, stories I've read, that if it were true Celtic mythology it would be in Scotland and Ireland and all parts of the country. Not uh, just the specific here and there. Well that's one researcher's opinion I would say. You think? I think, because okay. mythology is not everywhere. It is, it is in certain places. Greek mythology is in Greece, or, for example. You know, And the Celts were not all over every area of England, Scotland, Ireland. Oh. Um, you know, we had the Normans, you had other stuff. You had other factions in history. I guess I didn't research that one. Well, I'm not great Too on far, Celtic anyway. history either, but yeah. I know that much. <laughs> All right, so let's move on from the Screaming Skull to the famous, or infamous if you want, the Curse of the Hope Diamond. Well, according to the Smithsonian, the Hope Diamond was purchased by Evelyn and Ned McLean in 1910 from Pierre Cartier of the famous Cartier Brothers Jewelers who stated the diamond was cursed as it was stolen from a Sitta idol in India. The original thief was torn to pieces by dogs, and everyone else has been involved with the diamond met horrible deaths and bad luck. It just so happens that Pierre Cartier said he made this story up because he knew that the Maclean's, especially Evelyn, would be into something like this. But, you got to hear the whole story of the Hope Diamond and our, let our listeners decide on their own. Is this thing really cursed or not? It's got some ominous sides to it. As predicted, 
Evelyn was entranced by Cartier's story, and she decided later to buy the diamond. The McLeans were among the richest families in the United States, owning banks, real estate, the Washington Post, and McLean, Virginia was even named after the family. They owned some of Washington's most luxurious and valuable real estate, in addition to homes in Newport, Rhode Island, Bar Harbor, Maine, and Palm Beach, Florida. They exemplified the later years of the Gilded Age, using, flaunting, and even some would say wasting their gigantic fortune on over-the-top, conspicuous consumption. Evelyn wore the diamond at extravagant parties, paraded the diamond around Washington, and made it much of it publicly until 1919, because it was then that her 10-year-old son Vincent was struck down and killed by a car near their Washington, D.C. estate. Newspapers proclaimed that maybe the Hope Diamond really was cursed, and they wondered who would be next to be struck by the diamond's malignant light rays. It was as if all of the negative energy that was locked inside the uncut diamond had now been unleashed upon its processors, or possessors, because of the cutting. Pandora's box, so to speak, had been opened. The story of the curse appealed to the public and resonated with other cursed stories of the air about the Titanic and Egyptian mummies. The idea was that somehow the wealthy who had flaunted their wealth by obtaining the treasures of others were now getting paid back by higher supernatural powers. The curse story was only amplified by these events. Ned McLean went insane, and the family lost the Washington, D.C. Post in bankruptcy, despite Evelyn trying to use the Hope Diamond as collateral for a loan. Evelyn actually pawned the Hope Diamond in 1932 to hire an investigator to track down the kidnappers of Charles Lindbergh's baby. The remaining money was to be used for a possible ransom. The money wasn't needed, and the diamond was eventually returned to her. But, is this where this curse originated? According to some deeper research, I have to say no. The Hope Diamond was part of a larger diamond that was stolen in 1792 and was missing for over 20 years when the 45-carat blue diamond, we now know as the Hope Diamond, showed up. It turned up in London in 1812 in the possession of an English diamond merchant named Daniel Elison. Elison sold the blue diamond to British King's George IV, and some call it the George Blue Diamond. George IV celebrated the diamond as a trophy for defeating his enemy, Napoleon. He wore the blue diamond in a new golden fleece decoration. The British king, though, was a spendthrift and almost bankrupted the throne. After the king died in 1830, his executor, the Duke of Wellington, had to sell the blue diamond to pay off his debts. He sold it to Henry Philip Hope, a great diamond collector. Then in 1887, the diamond was inherited by Lord Francis Hope, Henry Hope's great-grandnephew. Francis bet badly on horses, bad business enterprises, and had an American showgirl wife named Mayoa. He lost his fortune and his wife, and after a series of court cases was allowed to sell the diamond. It was purchased by a New York jeweler named Joseph Frankel's and Sons Company in 1901. Frankel's hoped to make a quick sell and a big profit, 
as they put up much of their business capital to buy the Hope Diamond. Instead, the overvalued diamonds sat in their vault. In 1907 bankers' panic, essentially which was a recession, it took its toll on the company, and Frankel's was diamond-rich but cash, cash poor and went bankrupt. The first stories about the Hope Diamond being unlucky came in the financial pages of the New York Times in 1908. The Chronicle noted that the gem was responsible for Frankel's failure. Then other newspapers in Washington and London picked up the story and made it increasingly elaborate. Speaking of the Belflow influences and the power of the mysterious rays that emanated below the glittering surface of the diamond that unleashed evil upon those who possessed it. These stories blame the executions of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, Hope's bankruptcy and divorce, and Frankel's collapse on the malevolent influence of the Blue Diamond. Well, we have been to the Smithsonian and have seen this gem, and it is quite beautiful. The curse has apparently stopped since arriving there, uh, from what I've read. There gem collection seems to have grown through many donations from philo philanthropic types um, and there, I can't find any more stories about unlucky events happening to people who have handled it since it's arrived there. At least none that have been attributed to the curse. You know, you're absolutely right and mm -hmm. it is amazing that there has been nothing bad and it may be because it's, it's like not it reversed. Yeah, because it's not owned by a person, maybe. maybe. It's owned by the institution. And maybe the curse was whoever personally possessed it was cursed. Right. And, of course, they have to, as curators, have to handle it with probably uh, some sort of special gloves so that they don't uh, tamper with the... Yeah. Brilliance true. of the true, diamond. True. Yeah, very true. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go over one more. Busby's Stoop Chair. Thomas Busby was executed in 1702 after murdering his father-in-law and another man in North Yorkshire, England. It happened that they were all counterfeiters and they were turning against each other. And I think that's why the murders happened according to what I've read. But according to legend, Busby said before his execution, May death come to anyone who dares sit in my chair. Apparently he had his last meal or last drink, depending on which side of the legend you read, in that chair before he was hung. Then after Busby's death, multiple reports arose of people dying or meeting some other tragedy after sitting in the cursed chair. One man was found hanging outside the Busby Stoop Inn after sitting in the chair. And soldiers who sat in a chair during World War II and World War I said that they have not made it back alive. So then in 1978, the landlord of the inn, out of concern for his patrons, and maybe ordered to attract more of them, donated the chair to a local museum with the condition that no one should ever be allowed to sit in it. Despite regular offers from ghoulish buyers who want to purchase the chair and sensation seekers who want to sit in it, the museum has refused to sell the chair, and the chair is on permanent display, suspended on the wall so no one can hang on or sit in it. I'm perplexed why this guy chose a simple chair to hang the curse on. Perhaps it was 
all that he had to claim. I mean, <clears throat> I read the dispute with the father-in-law began with him sitting in Busby's bar stool, but it wasn't even really his chair. It was a favorite bar stool at the local tavern. It, yeah, but it, it's a chair chair, not a bar stool as you would think about, and that's how they had him at, at that time at those places. Right. And it was his favorite, you know, I guess that the alcohol tasted better if he was in that chair. And, you know, we've seen years of TV shows with That's My Spot. And <laughs> some people some people are very dedicated to their spot. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. It is kind of weird, but I guess he really liked that chair. I guess. And folks, we're getting close to the end of the episode. And we haven't even talked about objects that are intentionally cursed or blessed like an amulet or a talisman or even good luck charms. I guess that'll be a future episode for us. So, Deb, what do you think about these and any other cursed and haunted objects? Do you have one overall that is scarier than any others? I still don't like the Dybbuk or the box or both, as we talked about in a previous episode on cursed objects. I guess it's the fear of the unknown that gets me about it. Um, But I do really like the Hope Diamond because there are so many interesting stories surrounding it. But I don't feel inclined to say I am scared of the gem. Yeah, well, you know, all I can say is Robert the Doll still freaks me out. Mm, The Doll. You know, yeah, Robert the Doll freaks me out. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, well, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time, when we discuss another tale yet to be told. Thank you for listening, and remember to like and share the show. We would also appreciate a five-star rating wherever possible to help new listeners find the show. We welcome all questions or comments you may have about this or any other episode, and our contact information can be found in the show notes of this episode. You can also follow us at foreverparanormal.com. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash foreverparanormal. The links to these are also in the show notes of this episode.